you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. And, and also, as long as you're not doing it in a spirit of actual hate, you know, if we believe in things like the Enlightenment and what the Enlightenment gives us, and that's individualism, it's autonomy, it's political representation, it's a certain amount of freedom, like it all depends on free speech and arguing stuff out because otherwise we're going to get shitty versions of arguments, shitty technology, shitty innovation. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined in New York City by Nick Gillespie. Nick is one of America's best-known libertarians. He is currently editor-at-large at Reason, having previously been editor-in-chief at Reason magazine and editor-in-chief at Reason.com and Reason TV. He's a prolific speaker and a regular on TV, and he is known in some circles as the Fonzie of Freedom, due, I think, to his famous black leather jacket. Very young listeners might not understand that cultural reference, of course. He is the author with Matt Welsh of The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. And although I know Nick didn't actually write the following line, he has quoted it, and I think it sums up his libertarian politics pretty well. I want gay married couples to be able to protect their marijuana plants with guns. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and uh, I will apologize for the background uh, noise of the greatest city in the world, New York. <laughs> Absolutely so, fine. Yeah. Uh, I want to kick off by talking about freedom of speech. Right. Um, because in recent years... It, it was a good idea. It was a very good yeah. idea. And it was kind of uh, it was nice while it lasted. It was nice yeah. while it lasted, if it ever did yeah. last, really. Uh, in recent years, the situation has become pretty shocking. Uh, in Europe, people have been imprisoned for things that they've said. In the United Kingdom, people have been questioned by the police for supposedly transphobic comments. Someone was found guilty of teaching his pug to do a Nazi salute. Right. Currently, and, uh, I, I, I just want to stop because we spoke recently <laughs> together on the uh -huh. same uh, platform, and you pointed out that in the the Nazis didn't even convict people That's who right. had done that as a joke. That's Teach right. Their a German man having, who yeah. taught his dog to do a Nazi salute wasn't even <laughs> but punished Count by Dankula, the Nazis. We, yeah. we must put him in the stockade. <laughs> Modern you know? day Scotland yeah. is not quite as tolerant as Nazi Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, so currently the Dutch... I am, by the way, disappointed though that yeah, it please. was a pug and not a dachshund or a German shepherd. Or schnauzer. I mean, shouldn't it have been a German dog? That, that would have teaching? been a lot better. I mean, that's where that I think he, that's what he should go to jail for. Yeah, you know, not thinking it through. <laughs> and then, of course, the other thing that you've written about and I've written about is the campus madness mm -hmm. and people literally gathering together to screech speakers off campus and all the rest of it. And there was the Charlie Hebdo massacre, after yeah. which you wrote a very good piece on how people support freedom of speech today mm. but then it kind of disappears you know we were all charlie for a day or two but yep. then we weren't charlie for much charlie. Yep. longer after that so uh, how do you think things stand now because the campus stuff has died down a bit uh yeah and it's you know so i i'm of two different mindsets of this or at least two uh and i, I went through a herman hess phase so, and i really imbibed steppenwolf which is all about multiplicity of you know 
conflicting identities and stuff. So, I, and I guess I didn't think about it. Herman Hess was intersectional before intersectionality was a thing in that <laughs> book. But so here's a couple of uh, thoughts about it that don't necessarily, I mean, they kind of contradict each other or they go in different directions. But first, you know, free speech has never been particularly strong or vibrant. And in America, and I, I don't know the history of England, uh, of the UK or of uh, Europe very well in this, but really the, the modern era of free speech only dates back to maybe about 1960 before that due to a bunch of, uh, you know, really brave publishers, basically, uh, like the uh, Barney Rossett, the guy who founded Grove Books and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet who published Allen Ginsberg yeah. and the Beats and whatnot. Uh, you know, you couldn't even buy a legal copy of Ulysses or Lady Chatterley's Lover in America until like 1960. And then, you know, so it's really a recent phenomenon that we're allowed to say whatever we want, wherever we want in a pretty robust way. And I do think that window is closing in a lot of ways. Uh, although now, you know, nobody wants to be a censor in the past. People were proud of being censors. Yeah. People don't really talk about it in those terms. It's very much of, you know, and what you guys at spike do and uh, people like Frank Ferretti, uh, it's always therapeutic language. It's, you know, it's that we, we don't want to hurt other people. Your speech is harmful to people. It's not, vile, et cetera. But, you know, the, the whole category of obscenity is is a false category, which is a way that the government can then limit speech in America. So, so in one way, you know, we're still in this period. And there's no question that online, you can say whatever you want. It's getting increasingly possible that you're going to be kicked off all of the major platforms, yeah. mm -hmm. and which is very troubling to me. And the um, so in one, on one, on the one hand, I would say we're freer than ever to say whatever the fuck we want. And on other, you know, the, the forces of kind of conformity and consensus and the status quo are squeezing it down. And certainly, you know, you mentioned, you, have, you know, Fonzie is from the 70 sitcom happy days. There were TV shows on in broadcast network, you know, things like all in the family or Maud or whatever in, in this early seventies in the mid seventies, which were so much starker and like the language was so much freer than what you see on TV today in many ways. And yeah. there's some, there, you know, we have been sliding back on that. And more than specific utterances, I think it's a culture of debate, which is one step removed from free speech. You need free speech to have it. But we have given up on the idea in many ways, or we're, we're starting to on the idea that we should have free and open debate. Uh, and that that means you know, you're going to bring your best arguments and people's feelings are going to be hurt. And also, in order to stage that, you're going to have to let the jackasses and the assholes and the, the racists and the Nazis, you know, and the, the commies and the pinkos and all of the, you know, like they, all of them, you, you can't police people mm. and expect to have mm. a culture of debate, which I think is what we really need. Um, mm. And that's, you know, ultimately, you know, free speech is absolutely important. I think it's, you know, it, it is uh, along with uh, freedom of conscience, writ large. I mean, taking it out of the out of seventeenth century uh, England, uh, you know, because nobody worships God anymore. But it's you know the idea of being able to believe what you want or think how you think, uh, and then express that. Um, you know, it's it's under attack. And then the other way that it's under attack in the United States, and it, it's even more so in Europe through a variety of uh, you know hate speech laws as well as privacy regulations. But in the U.S., there, the internet is built on this. Uh, part of a, a law from the mid-90s called the Communications Decency Act. There was Section 230, which immunized publishers of websites and platforms from illegal or libelous speech that or activities that their users might engage in. So you don't have to worry if you're a publisher of a website like Reason.com, if our commenters say foul things and libelous things, we're not liable for that. Mm. Um, 
uh, you know, Facebook is not liable if people are, for the most part, I mean, there's some exceptions to this, but like if people say use, use Facebook to start trading sex or selling sex, mm. et cetera, there is a very concerted effort always in the name of combating like sex trafficking or, or child pornography or this or that, or this sanctified cause to narrow the scope of section 230. And what's really daunting to me now, and I say this as somebody I started at reason 25 years ago, right when the web was becoming a main, a major medium, uh, it, and everybody was celebratory. For the most part, everybody was utopian. We had created this new supplemental space where we were going to do all sorts of interesting things. We we're going to have free speech. We we're going to be free from everything. We would create our own regulations and kind of create our own tribes online. Now, Republicans and Democrats alike, for different reasons, are saying, yeah, Section 230, we, we want that out and we want to start regulating speech online in yeah. a way that is seri a serious threat to free speech. Some European listeners might be surprised by some of what you've said, because there is this um, assumption in Europe that America has the First Amendment mm -hmm. and it guards freedom of speech and people can pretty much say what they want. And it is pretty good. And but it's it, pretty good yeah, but in comparison is... with European yeah, nations, right. which often don't have any protections, or if they do, they're caveated so much yeah. it just goes out of existence. Well, and, you know, but, and I know that you're a big uh, uh, fan of John Stuart Mill. This gets into the question. What's happening in America is that it's not that the laws are necessarily changing so much. In some yeah. instances, they are on, like, campus and stuff and speech cuts there. But it really is the climate and the culture. Yeah. And, you know, this is... Uh, it's a much harder type of repression to fight, actually, because we do have the First Amendment. But like if you have the First Amendment, but everybody is chicken shit to say what they yeah. actually think, uh, who needs, you know, the First Amendment, You, it's pretty easy to work around it. But I, I was going to say that the, the Iraqi American poet Dunya Mikhail once said that censorship in America is implicit and precedes speech as opposed to Iraq somewhere like Iraq, where right. censorship is explicit and it follows speech, which I thought was a pretty good description yeah. of how even in a country like the US, which has a First Amendment protection of the right to freedom of speech against government intervention, there still is a large amount of self-censorship. There's still a large amount of conformism. There's still the situation, which I want to touch upon in a second, of corporates now throwing their weight around, particularly in the new public square of the internet. So, uh, so my question, I guess, is where do you think... In the U.S. context, where do you think the largest threat to freedom of speech is coming from? Is it from the government? Is it from the mob? Is it from the right? Is it from the left? Yeah, How do you see the threat? I think it's uh, it, it's all of those things. Of those things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's this uh, ambulance or fire engine coming down the street, too. Um, but it's, <laughs> it is, um, you know, I, I actually, you said mob. It's, uh, there was a concept in the 90s that was birthed, uh, might have been the early 2000s, called smart mobs. Yeah. Self-organizing groups that are different than you know mobs you know that have to you know that, that have to gather in the town square and get pitchforks and torches yeah. and go you know roast frankenstein's monster or something um and instead you have an infinite number of of mobs that are constantly ad hoc mobs that come together to attack you know something for a minute and then pull back i mean we saw that there was a story about the showdown between a bunch of white catholic school kids and an indian american indian and some black street preachers and whatnot you know where you, you you just have these mobs flare up and go away and i do think it's you know again the difference isn't the law and the difference isn't the technology we have technology that allows more people to enter into public debate um, you know, in the public sphere of debate and discourse than ever, uh, which is great and is really important. But 
if you, if everybody going in, is like, well, I got to make sure I don't want to offend people or I don't want to reveal myself as a nonconformist or as a free thinker. Um, you know, all of these tools are just kind of rusting in the shed or they're, you know, they're like exercise equipment. You buy it, work out once, and then you start hanging your clothes on it. It's like, uh, well, going back to Mill, who you mentioned, John Stuart Mill, um, one of his great arguments in on liberty is that the threat to freedom of speech doesn't only come from law, but also comes from the, the tyranny of wisdom, the tyranny of received opinion. I think that's one of the big problems we face now is the tyranny of opinion or the tyranny of acceptable opinion. Now, for people like you and me, it's relatively easy to kick back against that and say what we want to say. But there are, I would expect, large numbers of people out there who, who I'm not saying they're cowards by any yeah. stretch of the imagination, but who do feel very strongly that there are certain opinions which could, if you express them, cause problems in your life. You yeah, might be no, twitch hunted, I, you might lose yeah. your job, you might be ousted from the dinner party circle. Yeah. I think people feel that in a real no, way. No, and I, you know, I actually, every time I am about to go soft, I guess, as like Margaret Thatcher would say, you know, and I, you know, I'm sure she, you know, being married to Dennis Thatcher, I'm sure she knew a lot about people going soft, <laughs> right? But I, I actually think of you, I mean, because like you are a brilliant polemicist, oh. and, and this is true of people at Spiked and at the Institute of Ideas, mm. you know, and we've kind of been in overlapping circles for, I don't know, like 15 years now or more. And it's like, it's really bracing because it's like, yeah, you know, like I, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. Yeah. And, and also yeah. as long as you're not doing it in a spirit of actual hate or, uh, you know, and I, I mean, you can, I, uh, there are certain people whose arguments I hate or I find, uh, you know, offensive, but like, you know, the whole point uh, is to have uh, if, you know, if we believe in things like the enlightenment, and what the Enlightenment gives us. And that's individualism, it's autonomy, it's political representation, it's a certain amount of freedom, but it's also, like, it all depends on free speech and yeah. arguing stuff out, because otherwise we're going to get shitty versions of arguments, shitty technology, shitty innovation. Um, but I agree that a lot of people are not necessarily in a position where they can do that. And, you know, part of it's, it's your age, part of it's where you are at your career, part of it is, like, your family or whatever. Um I don't know how people, I mean, I'm, you know, lucky enough to uh, first up be older and to have been employed at the same place for a long time. But it's like, I don't, I don't have a tribe, really. I mean, like libertarianism, to the extent that it's a tribe, it's, you know, it's one of those tribes that like where everybody is constantly, uh, you know, stabbing each other in the back yeah. or something or yeah. like, you know, cutting their hamstrings once you start walking in front of them. So, uh, and, you know, there aren't many sacred cows that we need to... Uh, yeah. You know, so like, because I, I don't know how people do it. Like if you're a, a heterodox thinker and you're gay or you're black or you're a woman or you're, you know, or you're any number of things, like it's hard because yeah. there's much more received, um, you know, kind of that wisdom. That uh, you... I wanted to ask you how you think that came about, because you mentioned Lawrence Ferlinghetti mm -hmm. and Ginsburg and those kind of 60s cats yeah. or whatever yeah. they call themselves, who, who, who were very interested in the idea of freedom of speech right. or, or countercultural freedom and, and the right to publish poems about all sorts of things, mental breakdown, oh, I mean, actually, encounters. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's-his-face, um, Ginsburg actually was, at various points, was a supporter of the North American Man Boy Love well, Association. Right. So, yes. I mean, like, he was a free speech radical. Yeah. Um, you know, and I actually, when I think about that kind of stuff, my first thought is like, okay, that's, you know, that might be a bridge too far, but it's also kind of like, you know, there's a difference, you know, as long as people are consenting and we can have a debate over, you know, ages of consent and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, they they put it on the line, you know, where they were going to go to jail and stuff yeah. like that. And, um, 
you know, we certainly owe them a lot of uh, thanks. What has happened, I think, over time is that, uh, and in the 80s especially, the 60s became kind of vilified by conservatives. Mm -hmm. They were like, you know, the 50s were a great old time and, you know, nobody was gay and everybody was married and everybody had a ton of kids and we got new appliances every year, every 18 months. And the 60s were bad. It's And it was it was kind of a great grift because... Actually, if you go back and look at the 50s, like every book is about, you know, uh, you know, the coming nuclear apocalypse, yeah. about why the American educational system sucks, why the Russians are beating our ass into space, uh, why people are lonely, the books like The Lonely Crowd and why we're conformists. And everybody was a beatnik or an Ayn Rand fan who, like all were like, burn it all down and let's create new societies. Um, but in any case. I think the vilification of the 60s ended up bleeding over in a weird way to the left as well. And I know I, I went to grad school in the late 80s and early 90s. And one of the things that happened were like my first one set of professors literally had gone to Berkeley in the 60s where the, you know, the free speech movement started. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. the you know, the free speech movement, which got started in 1964, it was a spontaneous moment where at, at Berkeley, uh, at this public university, you could only leaflet political speech or you could only do political leafletting if you were a member of the college republicans or college democrats right and there were a bunch of people who were trying to sign up people to go to the south to uh for the freedom summers and and register blacks to vote in the yeah. south and they weren't allowed and that's like you know a uh, a kind of police encounter touched off the free speech movement uh, and it's it's really amazing because then it goes into a whole, you know, it gets insane very quickly where the, uh, uh, the uh, you know, the students were then calling themselves like they were like there was a, a slogan called student as nigger and that like, oh, actually students wow. were as poorly treated as blacks in the South because we were all part of a machine or an establishment that was right. grinding us up. And, you know, the, the great speaker of the free speech movement, Mario Savo, uh, Savio, uh, actually said like, you know, throw your bodies on the machine. He was quoting, uh, uh, Emerson and, and Thoreau, uh, these, you know, 19th century American, uh, civil libertarians. But in any case, after, um, the, the Berkeley professors I had were all about free speech. And I was a libertarian in grad school. And they were like, you know, uh, your ideas are kind of stupid, but let's talk about them. <laughs> the people who came a beat after that were not at all interested in free speech because they had they had absorbed uh, Herbert Marcuse's thesis of repressive tolerance that yeah. the idea that if you allow free speech or the semblance of dialogue and debate, you are abetting the status quo where what we really need is revolution and, and change. And they were much more Maoist in that. I, I don't even know if that makes sense, Maoist. But like they, whereas the 60s people were genuinely, uh, I think, uh, uh, committed to the idea that we don't know everything, so we should keep talking. The people who came after that were like, that's bullshit, and we need to implement the solutions that we have. And in America, and, and, and I, it's, this isn't just like a story about me you know, growing up or something, it's in the late 80s when Michael Dukakis lost the election in 1988 to George H.W. Bush, who everybody was like, you know, in a way that they would blush now, but everybody was like, he was a wimp and a pussy. You know, he was like, even though he was like an actual World War II hero, but he had been in charge of the CIA and he had you know, been the China ambassador. He was from a family that goes back, you know, hundreds of years in America. He was a total paper, you know, like a, an empty suit. And nobody thought that he could be elected president after two terms of Reagan in the, in, on the left. And when he was, mm -hmm. I think they kind of lost their they shit. Lost and then they were like, we really have to, you know, uh, weaponize and militarize and start marching. You know, we got to pick up the pace and the march through the institutions. You know, uh, 
I've got so many questions on what you've just said, um, but I'll ask a couple of them. I I often feel really I often feel very torn about the 1960s. I don't I mm-hmm. wasn't alive in the 1960s, but the way I, uh, I I'm torn between on the one hand appreciating exactly what you've just described, which was was there's there was a sense of self doubt giving rise to a sense of a, a demand for greater freedom, greater discussion, yeah. more rights. There were obviously numerous liberation movements emerging: yeah. women's liberation, gay liberation, national liberation, which many yeah. in the West. So all that stuff is to the good. But at the same time, I can't help thinking that a lot of the seeds for what you described as coming later, and particularly in the 1980s, were actually sown in the 1960s. So if you look at the kind of therapy culture, Mm -hmm. environmentalism takes off, uh, the idea that we're all just atoms and we can't really understand each other, all that kind of slightly divisive, fearful, um, potentially illiberal stuff is also kind of comes in under the I, radar of the yeah. countercultural revolution. I, so I wonder, yeah, so what's your, what's your general take on the 60s, well, good or bad? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, yeah, it's like, I, you, know, I, well, you know, I was born in the 60s, so I guess I <laughs> moderately, I'm kind of thumbs up, but, you know, <laughs> depending on the time of day, I could be like, what a mistake. Uh, no, it's, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I understand your uh, large point, And I would say in the end, it's, it's a really good thing that America hmm. had this, or that, you right. know, that Europe had the 60s. And actually, when you start to think about it because you mentioned like national liberation or post-colonialism for the world it was great yeah. because yeah. i mean it's hard to remember like you know the idea that up through i guess certain uh, certain point in the 60s i mean it was already starting uh, even before world war ii but certainly after you know the decolonization movement is like kind of a big deal Absolutely. you know and, and one of deal. the things that is uh really awful about america and it, and it bedevils us to this day is the you know the almost complete lack of interest in what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, but having said that, I think, you know, again, much of what happened in the 60s came out of the 50s, um, you know, which also came out of earlier movements. And I think it's it's all good. But I agree there is a kind of tyrannical, major, not majoritarian, I mean, kind of like bully stuff. And it's, you know, it's very quickly that you can go from being, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in a hippie commune where you're just letting your freak flag fly and you're, you know, you're using... Um, you know, a bicycle to pedal a generator to make yogurt or something. I mean, this is what people were doing. And then the next thing you have, like the weather underground bombing buildings yeah. or, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the Manson family. I mean, these things all, you know, it all kind of trundles along with one another. I think one of the problems now is that the, on the, I don't even want to say the right, uh, because there's reactionaries and they're not interesting, but I do think libertarians are the, because we can, we can bridge both the right and the left in a way that most, groups can or most kind of ideologies there's left libertarians and right libertarians we are not doing as good a job as we need to be doing in defending free speech and we oftentimes end up taking up the cudgel and this happens all the time where you take like the dipshits or you know and it is like count dankula like i mean i don't want to i don't want to die you know on a a hill for count dankula and and the pugs uh, and nazis you don't want to die in that hill yeah um (laughs) but it's you know, we, we need to be talking about all of this stuff in a broader context and also one that is, yeah, I hate to use, well, I, I'll unapologetically use the word inclusive because one of the problems, and again, you were right to talk about like all of those liberationist movements, which were overdue and necessary, um, you know, they, they can end up becoming extreme parodies of themselves yeah. almost. I mean, like French Revolution type stuff. And so you can see we're now, you know, 30 or 40 years, 50 years later, we're 
at at a place where every individual has more freedom to live however they want, no matter, you know, and it's not that all individuals have equal amount, but it's like, it is easier to be black in America in 2019 than it was in 1969 mm-hmm. or when 1919. But we also, we cannot have any conversation about progress on anything. Um, and as a result, we have people who are demanding, they're talking as if the, you know, the, uh, status of any aggrieved individual or group is what it was 50 years yeah, ago. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's not that we don't need to do better. We always need to be doing better. And we are, I mean, we're going through criminal justice reform in America, which is a way of redressing absolutely racist laws that were passed either knowingly or very close to knowingly with racial animus um, to incarcerate blacks and Latinos and, and poor people, poor whites and stuff. We're redressing that, but you know, but we can't talk about that. And so somehow if you're gay or if you're black or if you're a woman, the situation is as bad or worse than it was when these movements got started. And that's, uh, I I completely agree with that. And and that's actually, it makes public rational public discussion incredibly yeah. difficult because there's no sense of historical perspective everything is white supremacy or everything is as bad as it was in the 1840s or whenever it might have been so no i think that makes things difficult to appreciate where we've come to right and how we got there which was as a result which of is an argument that helps keep it going too i mean because one of you know i i think and i was saying libertarians are not doing a good job because we we end up defending speech the speech acts of particular people rather than a larger process yeah. which again and you know and i know i'm kind of playing to you here on this but of like you know of of, of an enlightenment based society and i'm not uh I'm not an uncritical fan of the Enlightenment. I and I also I think you know just like the sixties was good and bad. The Enlightenment mm-hmm. legitimately mm-hmm. it does give rise to uh, you know kind of liberal democracies and individual rights and wealth creation. But it also gave rise to you know in a, in a refracted way to the gulags and the concentration camps. Oh, we'll in in a response, you know <laughs> no, but I mean because the counter. The romanticism that drove, say, like Nazism, and in a different way, but the industrialism that drove, uh, you know, Stalinism, you know, these are all, you know, there's there's no way to separate out all of this stuff and be like, no, you know, the Enlightenment is all good or bad. Um, and but what it, you know, at its core, the stuff that we need to be preserving is the good stuff. And that's the, you know, that creates an, a kind of cultural operating system that allows a lot of different people to live a lot of different ways without killing each other. I want to just say one more thing, ask you one more thing about the 60s and freedom, modern freedom, I guess. Um, I thought, uh, I think Philip Roth always Mm. captured quite well the contradictions of the 60s. I mean, he kind of, in American pastoral in particular, glorified the 1950s to a certain extent Mm. and and work and duty and loyalty and family service and so on. And then the 60s, to his mind, becomes a fairly liberation process, but also one that gives rise to a kind of violent narcissism and so on. And I thought, I think that's kind of where I stand uh, in relation to that stuff. But just uh, following through on that, when you talk about Marcuse and the march Mm -hmm. through the institutions, I have a slight issue with those arguments because... um, in some people's hands, not yours, because you're far too clever for this, but in some people's hands, it does come off like a bit of a conspiracy theory. Oh, and yeah, and right. so so I've said this to you before yeah. numerous times, including at a recent LibertyCon 
panel discussion that you and I did. My least favorite term of the modern era is cultural Marxism, oh, which agree, is yeah. used as a kind of explanation for the decay of freedom on yeah. campus and the decay of inquiry. I, and and I, I don't mean it in those terms yeah, at all. What sure. I mean is that people who and who no longer I mean, like no very few student radicals have read anything by Marcuse. They don't know who Antonio, Antonio Gramsci is or anything. Right. Um, but those ideas are really important. And they also that's how. You know, it's, I mean, it's in one way, it's how, you know, social and cultural change happens. It takes place over a long period of time and, you know, a kind of long march through the institutions. There's no question that the professoriate in America, which we're probably giving it too much credit, but um, it's much further left than it was 30, 40 years ago. I guess the big question about the 1960s, which may never be resolved, is whether the dynamic laid with those who were pushing for the radicalization of the campus or whatever else it might have been, or whether the, the dynamic laid with the traditional gatekeepers of knowledge and everything, and yep. tradition, who just gave up the game. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that, you know, like the university itself, uh, one of the things, and I suspect this is also true in England and uh, even in, in the European continent, although probably less so, you know, the, what, what, the, what the university existed to do in America has always been different um, than I think in Europe traditionally. And like there was a kind of finishing school for, you know, kind of boys, you know, like of, of privilege and stuff mm -hmm. like that, of, of you know, gentlemen's, uh, you know, the Baron Trumps of the world. Um, but then there was also pretty quickly on, like after the Civil War, there were so many um, colleges that were set up to, uh, I mean, these are the land grant colleges that did agricultural and mining technology, uh, etc. And college was always more of a mass phenomenon in America than it was in Europe, especially mm. after World War II, yeah. not, not because of the GI Bill. I could bore you with a discussion of that, but, um, but by 1970, a majority of uh, graduating high school seniors were going to some form of college immediately after. And that changed, you know, who was being taught. And I think it, it bred among certain members of the uh, professor class a contempt because there were a lot of people who were, you know, who really didn't deserve to be in college. And these are lefties. Right. I mean, they're not right-wing elitists. Right. Those were there. But they're like, these people are kind of, uh, you know, they're proles, really. They're, yeah. you know, they're, what what is it in Brave New World? You know, they're like gammas or betas yeah. or something, you know, where like, they're not capable of independent thought. And we don't want independent thought. We have to program the go out in the world and and do what we we already know what the answers are right so if we accept that one of the causes of illiberalism today or, or the or, or censorship mm. is 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 self-censorship yeah, and absolutely. um uh, you know the kind of the spiral of silence that people find themselves mm. falling into because they don't want to say certain things that are unutterable so, another aspect of it which i wanted to ask you about is the rise of what we might call corporate censorship so this is the role that's played not simply by those who want to change american legislation to make it easier to punish commenters on facebook or mm -hmm. or in the recent discussion threads right. for example which is a yeah. famous case here um but also uh the way in which silicon valley itself is assertively removing people who are suspect or problematic or who say crazy conspiratorial things alex jones and there are others too right. um one question i have in relation to that is is this one and which is kind of a fundamental question in some ways is libertarianism ready for the current climate because i've had this discussion with so many people including ayn randists over mm -hmm. the past couple of years where they argue to me that property rights facebook's property rights override facebook's users 
desire to say whatever they want to right. say. Now, I am increasingly thinking that that is going to prove to be one of the big political clashes of our time. It, it already is, and this is where that Section 230 stuff is happening, uh, because, uh, well, the, the broader question first is, uh, are libertarians ready for this? Part of the failure, I think, of the libertarian imagination, and I've, I've stressed it for a long time, uh, but not very convincingly, I think, to my uh, comrades, uh, which is that there are multiple sources of power and abuse of power and repressive power in society. It's not simply the government. Uh, that's what libertarians are always comfortable, you know, yeah. rallying against, you know, the post office, but they don't want to talk about, you know, UPS or, uh, you know, a <laughs> private package delivery service kind of sucking or something. And they'll say that with uh, stuff like Facebook or Twitter, where they'll say, you know what, it's not the government, and only the government yeah. can technically censor people, so we have nothing to talk about. I Now, I happen to believe, and, and there have been a couple of early court cases that have uh, ruled that, um, you know, Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Apple, that these, you know, the speech platforms they have are privately owned, and they have the right pretty much to do whatever they want and to kick whoever they want off. So I'm not even arguing that. But I think it's a bad idea. And like yeah. when I talk to libertarians about this, they're like, no, it can't be a bad idea if somebody in the market, you know, and especially a company like Facebook or Amazon or, you know, like they, you know, they're, you know, they're worth a trillion dollars. Like, how can how can that be wrong? But I do. It goes to this question of the climate, the larger climate of free speech. And, and it's particularly frustrating because. On social media, the whole point of it is that like, and, and I have problems with this, but the whole point is like, if you don't want to engage or encounter certain types of speech, you don't have to. Like, I swear to Christ, like I never stumbled across Alex Jones online. I always had to go hunting for him, uh, you know, and it's like, and then if he did show up in my Twitter timeline or something, you could just mute or silence him or banish him, you know, and it's like, problem is solved. Um, so, but I do think this larger question, and it's not just the speech platforms or or social media platforms, but it's corporate uh, culture wanting to be on the side of the angels or what they perceive. And then they start turning the screws, which again, I, I don't think it's, I kind of think it's inevitable. And what we need to be doing is not trying to say, well, corporations shouldn't aspire or they shouldn't wear an ethos uh, whenever they're doing stuff. But, um, you know, we, they should have better a better ethos then, you yeah. know, and, and it should be more classically liberal or libertarian and it should be less or, you know, um, let, you know, if Gillette, uh, you know, Gillette doesn't want to just sell razors, they, they also want to sell a version of toxic masculinity or a response to what they perceive as to toxic masculinity. Go ahead and let them do that. Uh, but then let's have more open conversations about this rather than you're just immediately becoming polarized and tribal and trying to shut down, you know, any any kind of conversation about any kind of idea. Yeah, I think the, the that line only the government can technically censor people and anything yeah. else is not censorship. I hear that so often now, but I hear it not just from libertarians and, you know, right leaning right. libertarians, but also from SJWs yeah, yeah. and people on the left who will hound people off campus. And then if you say to them, eh, you're censoring that guy, they'll say no, only the government right. can censor. So that argument comes from both sides. I think from libertarians, it, it becomes a justification for their moral elevation of property rights over rights to freedom of speech. Well, for and the, the argument is that if enough, you know, if Twitter makes Twitter really shitty or, or bland, yeah, people uh, you know, people will break off and form their own version, which I think is true. I mean, there have been attempts at this or people will stop using it. And I, I don't debate any of that. Uh, you know, I don't argue any of that. But it's just like, you know, 
Twitter 10 years ago, Facebook 10 years ago, YouTube, and maybe I'm just like a fucking old man at this point, but it's like they were better because they were more wide open. And this is a broader, uh, you know, and it's hard to separate out how much of this is about the tech center or about the media center uh, sector, but it's locking down. I mean, in all sorts of ways, the speech stuff, uh, paywalls are going up, uh, what is considered appropriate. I mean, uh, YouTube, uh, basically when Google bought YouTube, and this was years ago, they started enforcing copyright law. And that changed what ended up being up there and stuff like that. You know, and um, before there was a couple of years that were, were kind of great because you could find all sorts of, you know, unauthorized copies of shit on there. And then you'd, you'd go from that and then instead you start BitTorrenting stuff or going to pirate, uh, you know, pirate bay sites and things like that. Um, so it's all still out there and it's possible. But it it seems to me we are, you know, uh, and I, I realize that this is a... Uh, an argument that is often used by right-wing reactionary conservatives, but I do feel like there is a sense in the West, broadly speaking, whatever that means. And I, like you, I, I'm of Irish ancestry on my mm-hmm. father's side, and my mother was Italian. So, like, my grandparents were not even fully white when they, or part of the West. You know, nobody yeah. was claiming Ireland or Italy, Southern <laughs> Italy as, like, part of the West in 1915 when they showed up here. But, um, uh you know, in the West, I think we're losing uh, faith that like our institutions or that our individuals are strong enough to yeah. withstand, you know, like, you know, really tough arguments yeah. and like constant arguments and a constant process of finding out what is a better way to think about things, what is a better way to live, what, you know, and, and um, you know, that it's worrisome. And and it's not for me, like, I don't want to go back to olden times and I don't want to go back to restricted speech. I want it to be more open, uh, you know, and I, I don't have a lot of... I mean, the the past is useful for all sorts of reasons, mostly because you can simultaneously see where people went wrong, but you can also, I'm a big believer in a kind of Foucauldian uh, sense of genealogies that you, you know, uh, there was a American literary critic in the 20s or 30s who came up with this concept of the usable past. Like you can rummage through the past to, you know, to create and authorize you in the current moment and mm. say like, no, it, it all makes sense. Like you're building backward from the current moment to a, a tradition that makes sense and informs who you are and what you want the future to look like. I, I think, yes, I, I agree with that. And uh, I think that the, the doubt in people's robustness or their capacity for discussion or their capacity to hear wound, words without being wounded by them, you know, the great yeah. idea of our time, I guess, by which I mean the terrible idea of our time, is the idea that words wound in the same way that a knife could. Right. And that has a number of terrible consequences. The first is that people are encouraged into a sense of fragility. The other terrible response is that if words are violence, then violence becomes an acceptable response to words, right, right. which we've seen on campus. But, you know, I think people forget that, uh, well, I, I constantly try to remind them that one of the great things written about freedom of speech, which leaving aside John Stuart Mill, which was very much about conformism as well, but also Frederick Douglass, a plea for free speech, which was a response to not government heavy-handedness, but a mob turning up at a public event and trying to prevent it from going ahead. And so I think on on both sides, both on the libertarian side, who who, who do have an obsession with government as bad and everything else is less bad. And then on the the left side... Where it's like, we don't need to talk about other things. Because we we can spend the rest of our lives, of our artificially extended lives through science and technology, (laughs) you know, complaining about the government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do sometimes wonder... By the way, just to dilate for a second on Frederick Douglass, I think Douglass also, uh, you know, and and there's been a a kind of renaissance of him. There were a couple Mm -hmm. of biographies that came out recently. My colleague Damon Root is actually uh, writing a, a, a 
a book about Frederick Douglass as well. But uh, Douglass also um, helps get us out of, I think, where identity politics have led us to the idea that you can't experience or have empathy for the world outside of your own experience. And his the first version of his autobiography, he wrote three, uh, ultimately. Uh, but he talks about how he, he had been taught to read by his uh, master's wife kind of surreptitiously, and he was reading the Bible. And then he came across some Irish independence pamphlets. That's and right. he yeah. says, I mean, it's it's kind of, sty- when I, whenever I think about it, I get chills. But he says, like, I didn't know what I wanted kind of in terms of freedom until I read what these guys were talking about. And then I realized that. And so you have this amazing moment of empathy and of like learning from somebody you know who's also oppressed but is different but is human and then you know the irony is that he eventually does get freedom and he goes up north and then he's working in shipyards where a bunch of irish uh ship caulkers beat the shit out of him and break his tools because he's going to work for less than them so but but that you know, Douglas is great on free speech. He's great. Uh, he's actually great on wage labor. Uh, he's a big fan of it. Uh, but uh, so from a libertarian <laughs> perspective, I like that. But also he, he pulls us out of he, he makes it clear that you can have multiple identities, but you can always have empathy. Uh, and that's part of what is missing, I think, in a lot of uh, yeah. discussions today. Well, I wanted to. So, so let's move on, because I wanted to ask <laughs> you briefly about identity politics. So that's a nice segue into that. So uh, and I think you're right about Douglas and other uh, of those great thinkers from that period and later do stand as a great counter to mm-hmm. contemporary uh, identity politics. Another great one is who comes later than Douglas is C.L.R. James, the yeah, 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 the black Marxist, Jacobins. Yeah, 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 the black Jacobins. And his argument was always that um, Western civilization is the thing that uh, Western knowledge, Western civilization, Western literature is the kind of thing that people like him aspired to. They didn't look at it as at it as white they didn't want to decolonize the curriculum or anything like that um they saw it as a a great human gain that they wanted access to and that kind of thing has fallen by the wayside to a huge extent so but one question i had for you on on identity politics which i struggle with myself is whether it is an accomplishment of the left or the right or maybe it's a bit of both Mm. because it's most pronounced today among the left right but I've always thought, going back to some of your points about the Enlightenment, I've always thought that the original form of identity politics can really be found in the in the counter-Enlightenment. So you have the growth mm-hmm. of the Enlightenment, you have the growth yep. of the idea of man, this universal man who is a kind of has a shared capacity for autonomy, a shared right. capacity for reason. Women were kind of left out at right. that point. Although easily... Easily admitted. Easily I mean, because the, the, the framework, yeah, yeah. You know, as, as are the lower races. And this right. is where, for me, the Enlightenment is messy because people like David Hume and uh, uh, and John Locke wrote a lot about race theory. Yeah. We just don't read it, but it's like batshit crazy. Yeah. So it's like these guys who are like, on the one hand, like, you know, let's be realist, let's be empirical, let's be serious about things and, and also come up with a framework for rights that include more and more people. And we also think that Bad like black babies are actually born right. in Africa, born white, and they kind of they get dark over time. You know, nuts. it's like that's yeah. nuts. But it, so if you but if you look back at that period, the yeah. people who were most freaked out by the Enlightenment were the ones who would tend to say, "Well, there's no such thing as man." Yeah. There's Italian man, and yeah. there's black man, and there's all sorts of different people, and and yeah. they're not the same. So it starts, I think. I say starts, but it, it has an early expression in a kind of reactionary yep. response to the I, I think that's progress. a great way to but think then it gets it. embodied in the left which is yeah. very peculiar it's i don't think that the left you know nobody's doing a lot of homework these days you know it's just <laughs> like and, and i guess i benefited from that you know growing up in a post-homework world or something but 
you know, we, we have to be thinking better. And, and it's kind of like what, you know, in many ways, what Christianity, you know, I mean, the Enlightenment on a certain level is, is, is simply the um, secularization of, of uh, Christian ideals, I think, in terms of, and again, my, my interest in this, it's, it's very much informed and the reading of it is very much informed by my ex-wife, uh, Catherine Gillespie, who's a Milton scholar and, and writes a lot about 17th century British and American literature. And, you know, the idea of, um, you know, they I, and I, I, you know, I will say right up until the minute he actually won the Civil War, Cromwell was pretty much on target, you know, and I, I'm like, I'm a leveler. I think the levelers <laughs> oh, are yes. actually the people that we need to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, rediscovering and mm. revising for, you know, the contemporary moment, because I think they got the essentials right. Um, but you know, it's basically you realize like they were religious freaks who wanted to mm -hmm. be able to worship God in all of their different ways. And they were willing to grant each other equal rights to do that, yeah. you know, again, until they got into power and then yeah. things change. And, you know, and the Enlightenment in many ways, or at least the political legacy is kind of a secularized version of that, where we all are, you know, we're all individuals who have a right to live and, and to pursue happiness and to speak and to think, et cetera. And, you know, what the, what I think what the Enlightenment added to pre-modern culture was that universal dimension, which doesn't mean we're all exactly the same. And it doesn't mean that we're all like industrial widgets or, you know, that we go from being, oh, well, you know, here's like, you know, people from Southern Ireland and, and you know, Western Ireland and this, and they're all distinct tribes. And now they're all exactly the same. And, and they're the same as Swedes and, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, Bulgarians or something, but it's like, no, there is a core there, you know, um, and, you know, which is obvious. And, yeah. and now we want to say, no, you know, it's like my identity precludes any sense of ultimately any sense of empathy. And it also confers upon me an absolute right to structure all conversations, mm. um, based on, you know, uh, you know, whether it's intersectionality or, you know, increasing levels of oppression or, you know, which is always just masking very local situational power. I mean, it's not um, I don't you know, the, the you know, the the wretched of the earth. I mean, don't get to speak for themselves, you know, by yeah. definition. Um, and it's always somebody in a particular moment uh, can seize power and the uh you know the control of discourse i i i i agree with so much of that and i think one of the things that terrifies me most about identity politics you, you mentioned ireland is is the um the embrace of the old form of divide and rule because hmm. identity politics when you think about it played a very key role in the domination the undemocratic illiberal domination of smaller nations by larger nations in the sense that one identity would always be pitted against right. another usually in an incredibly phony way yeah. to try and shore up the power of those in charge I, I, including know, in ireland fun. in fact yeah no i mean in ireland I, I mean like the irish and the british it's like it's as bad as like you know israelis <laughs> and palestinians like don't you see they're completely different and you know they're subhuman versus like the highest you know yeah. version of humanity and it's like you know the irish and the british are like Come on, yeah. You know, it's like, what the fuck's the difference? We're, no, you know? we're not different at yeah, all. No. And although, uh, uh, except, and of course, this drives the Brits insane. Is that, you know, like so many of the great, uh, you know, so many of the great figures in in English history and writers and whatnot are Irish, That's and it's right. like, and so then you get this odd thing, which is similar, like with 
you know, in American culture uh, with blacks, like where blacks have contributed so much to American culture. And yet we, you know, that's one more reason to kind of hate them on a subterranean level. You know, but what I find incredibly frustrating about this stuff is that if you say these things, if you say, if Nick Gillespie says blacks have contributed so much to American (laughs) culture, if I say the Irish have have done more for literature than the Brits have in the past (laughs) 150 years anyway, even if you say those things, simply by dint of you're challenging of identity politics you leave yourself open to the accusation of racism because Mm. accusations like that and words like that and claims like that are wielded so casually and so easily these days and so meaninglessly but i I, but one thing i wanted to ask you was in relation to this issue identity politics was was on the issue of whiteness because Mm -hmm. it's something that i find fascinating i thought you you mentioned earlier the covington catholic boys yeah and one thing i found quite terrifying about that incident it's not only the twitter mob and the rush to judgment and the and and robbie suave on reason wrote fantastically about this stuff uh just kind of instant judgment without any facts or evidence at all uh and he he wrote that wonderful piece in which he pointed out that if you look at the longer video you see that the covington boys actually were very nice to their black friend yeah and were very um uh, uh, well uh, yeah it, i mean there's it it it, it radically shifts the frame yeah you know, it shifts of, the frame of, of, of and like gives... how you interpret this one image you know which is and, and a, a minute and a half long video yeah. that went viral first but, and but one thing i thought about that affair was a lot of people compared those young boys to the kind of white racists yeah. who would gang like up on Charlottesville, the, right? No, to I mean, Charlottesville. Like, where actual shouting like Jews will not replace. Them. That's right. And or these even... kids, I went to, you know, I went to a Catholic high school, not an all boys school, and not a not a fancy school. I went to a parochial school, but <laughs> I, you know, when I saw those kids, I was like, they are such douchebags. <laughs> I mean, like, I know exactly who they are, but it's also like they're, you know, what it. it you know, I, I I didn't feel a need to immediately like castigate them or without understanding the situation. But the other but thing, that whiteness category is yeah. fascinating because you know one of the things, and this is something that comes out of a kind of postmodern understanding, which I'm I, you know I, I'm famous among libertarians for being postmodern, which they you know if it, you know it's bad enough that I'll say you know well corporations wield power too, meaningful power. Uh, you know, it's like that. I'm um, postmodern. You know, that is somehow that. Uh, you know, everybody. Uh, and this is where I think Jordan Peterson and a lot of other people, kind of in the intellectual dark web, they keep talking about postmodern Marxists. Yeah, and it's like, yeah. no, Marxists and postmodernists hate each that other. That makes no sense. But yeah. in any case, um, uh, you know, whiteness is a constructed category that is constantly changing. And and you know what whiteness meant in America again in 1915 when my WAP grandparents showed up was is radically different now and it's changing again and it's becoming this weird um reified concept of like whiteness i i don't you know and and on a certain level i understand what that means um but it's just become this blank vague category that you can just use to uh shut people up the other problem and that's one way that it's problematic but then the other way is that white people uh, you know and i'm making air quotes here start to take it on as an identity where (laughs) it's like all they have and like you you know and it's like what i mean like i you know these collective identities that are kind of non-ironic or taken literally um really are problematic yeah i think uh, i agree and i think the, the issue with whiteness that i have well betraying my 
radical left-wing background, uh, the, the way it's become this reified category, mm. almost like an original sin. If you're right. born white, you're, it's an original sin. Completely obliterates any questions of class or economic difference. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that white is, people, yeah. there are the, the differences between the, the white guy begging at the end of the street <laughs> and the white guy who runs a Silicon Valley company yeah. is immeasurable. Right. That's not never taken it, into account. Well, this is, you know, it's funny. Uh, when I was in grad school, and again, I went for like literary and cultural studies in the late 80s and early 90s. So everybody was talking about race, class, and gender. That was like the holy trinity of kind of cultural studies and literary studies when I was there. But nobody ever really seriously talked about class because the academy is also, at least in America, it's the one place where, you know, in politics or in business, everybody wants to be born in a, you know, log cabin with dirt floors and work themselves up. (laughs) Weirdly, like professors are never like, oh yeah, you know what? Like my parents are illiterate, toothless, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh, incestuous, you know, coal miners or something like that. They always want to pretend that they came into the world really classy and they know, you know, wearing velvet or something. So class has never really gotten a a fair shake in in the academy, I think. And also in American culture, because we have this bizarre um, uh, concept of... uh, you know, that like we're a classless society. Uh, and it's like, yeah, you know, class distinctions aren't as strong or as old as they were in maybe in England or in France or in Europe. But, you know, immediately there are like many different classes and they have economic class does confer certain interests to different groups. And yeah. I mean, I will argue, you know, and this is where I depart from Marxism. Um, I, you know, for me, I think, you know, how I consider or what I consider kind of laissez-faire and free market capitalism and the way that when Marx and Engels talk about it in the Communist Manifesto, how it fucks up tradition and it makes everything, you know, everything solid dissolves into air. Mm-hmm. For me, I, um, I, yeah, I like that because it, it gave me an opportunity to rise in a right. way that in a right. more structured society I wouldn't. I, you know, I can understand we can d- debate that, but yeah, class, um, class is, is the, uh, you know, the disappearing signifier in American discussions. And so you get people who might be super, you know, come from super wealthy, super privileged backgrounds, but they have the appearance of, you know, they're, they're Middle Eastern or they're, uh, they're, uh, South American or they're black or they're this or they're that as if they are underprivileged in a way, whereas in, in many yeah. ways, and certainly yeah. oftentimes I've, I've seen this time and time again from a class position, these are people like, you know, the, the son or daughter of like, you know, a Sri Lankan billionaire, yeah. uh, you know, like, you know, they're not, they're not speaking from the same position as like a corner drug right. dealer who happens to be black. That's right. I, I, I've often thought that identity politics is a way for pretty comfortable wealthy people to play the oppression card whereas if we thought in terms of class it would not be possible for them to do that but uh, in britain and in much of europe it's the exact same situation where in the academy and and also in politics you have this trinity now of race class Mm -hmm. and gender and i've always thought that actually even that phrase race class and gender shows how much class has been diminished as a as a serious category well you would make it the foundational category i would no but more no and i'm I'm not joking i I would uh, uh, and uh, in relation to those other two race and gender the reason i would do it is because there's a profound difference between class and race and gender race and gender are largely immutable categories that you're born into i would disagree Uh, with that Uh, gender well uh, never mind transgender is a we we don't have time for transgender but but whereas class that particularly the the idea of um 
early radical class politics was mm. that class could be transcended and class right. could even be destroyed. Yeah. And I guess if you go right back to the 18, mid-1800s and it's slightly later, the role of radicals, the, they saw their role as, as basically to end the working class. Right. Whereas with race and gender, it's a slightly different thing. Of course, you can end the politics of race. Right. You can end the politics of gender. But I think the, the collapsing together of those three categories speaks to the way in which the left has abandoned the idea of class as a dynamic, radical idea. The, I, I, I absolutely agree that the, the contemporary left shows very little interest. I mean, it was built on class analysis, mm. and it has kind of moved away from that in a pretty striking way. I do think, you know, I, one of my problems with all of the you know, race, class, and gender on a certain level is that they can be clarifying frames by which to analyze certain things. But, you know, where does the individual fit into all of yes. this? And, to, yeah. and, and, and in, especially in class politics, because this is where, you know, I'm, for me, it's like, I, you know, and this is partly the libertarian part of me, is that I am very much uh, invested in kind of an understanding at the individual level of yeah. what's going on. And that it intersects with larger identities and whatnot that are forced on people or that they choose to take on collective identities. But that's for me where class analysis often goes wrong. Right. So this brings me incredibly neatly okay. onto the final <laughs> section of the thing. I, 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 wanted feel, to talk I realize you about. now that I've been set up. All <laughs> You're listening to the Brendan O'Neill show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. So you mentioned earlier the levelers. I mm -hmm. think we both love the levelers, yeah. don't we? Um, I think, as you say, I think they are more relevant now than they have been mm -hmm. for a long time, particularly in relation to the Brexit phenomenon, yep. which is my favourite phenomenon of our times, <laughs> where you have very ordinary people using their democratic power to land an extreme body blow against contemporary technocratic, bureaucratic, mm. politically correct politics. So I want to ask you uh, why libertarians have such a problem with democracy well i you know that's it's a good question that's and that's a, a really uh, sly way to phrase it um because <laughs> you know and and i realize he's he doesn't quite fit into american libertarian politics but in england he passes for one sometimes a right-wing libertarian somebody like daniel hannon mm. was like one of the main champions of brexit yeah. and of course he seemed to be kind of like when donald trump won he didn't know what to do hannon is kind of like holy shit we actually won and then like and and the right i mean it was funny all, I, like pretty much all of the right wingers who were behind brexit like they just kind of exploded right mm. they spontaneously combusted because yeah. they didn't expect to win or whatever but um it it's a it's an interesting question and i think for uh from a libertarian perspective or from my libertarian perspective the problem with democracy is not Brexit. Um, it's more like, you know, there are certain rights that the individual has that should not be subject to a, a, a plebiscite, you know? And so like, I should be allowed to smoke what I want to smoke. I should be allowed to sleep with who I want to sleep with. I should be able to, you know, there's a, a big sphere of activity that should never be put up to a vote. And that's the real problem with democracy, I think, in, in the, you know, in, in a United States context from a libertarian yeah. point of view. And 
I will say this as somebody who I am, you know, I, uh, I, I guess it's Friedrich Hayek who, uh, is important to me. And I, you know, I recognize his many failings, but he has a, a line somewhere where he says, you know, it's like really up to every generation of, you know, of liberals to reinvigorate their ideas and make it, uh, you know, the idea of a freer world, like a fresh and bold undertaking. And I feel like we're in this, uh, category, you know, this era that, the short version is from World War II until the collapse of communism. Like, we haven't put in the brain work to figure out what comes after that, even though we're now 30 years out from, you know, the collapse of communism uh, effectively. And we need to, you know, I, and I think this is true of the left. I think it's true of the right. Mm -hmm. I think it's true of the libertarian uh, conception of things. Like, we need to figure out, like, we're living in a different world now. We're living in a world where, you know, for fuck's sake, uh, you know, 50% of people on, on the planet are technically considered middle, middle class. Uh, you know, there's been this a great um, kind of escape from poverty over the past 20 or 30 years. And we need to... Um, you know, like the politics of the 19th century or, you know, the 17th century, et cetera, they can inform what we're doing. But we need to figure out where we're going. Yeah. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, like demographics have changed in, in uh, like all over the world. I mean, like, you know, population is going to peak relatively soon and then it's going to start to decline if trends continue. That's going to radically alter how politics gets done, how life gets done, et cetera. And we're, we're still like, you know, arguing. I mean, we're like idiots who are arguing over, you know, the, you know, was, you know, the loyalists or, you know, the Abraham Lincoln brigades or something in the Spanish <laughs> Civil War. It's like, you know, we really got to like turn towards the future. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm down with that. But I want to go slightly yep. back on something you sure. said, because I think because uh, when I speak to libertarians, I speak to libertarians all the time. Yep. Some of my best friends are libertarians. So I have no problem. <laughs> okay, with so you're really going to lay, lay, <laughs> no, no, no. lay, lay a body blow here. Yeah. But, but, but when but uh, they will sometimes say, um, similar to what you've said, they will sometimes say that individual rights should not be subject to majoritarian mm -hmm. judgment or right. decision making and that's a very tempting view of things mm -hmm. i think two things about that the first thing is i wonder if this speaks to a lack of confidence among libertarians a lack of confidence that they might win the public to their positive mm. worldview that's interesting uh, and the second thing i think which i guess is might, might even be more important is that doesn't that mean that libertarians possibly as a consequence of lacking confidence to convince the public of their arguments, doesn't it mean that they then subsequently fall back on either constitutional arrangements or even worse, state arrangements to protect individual rights? And it, hmm. it possibly gives rise to a situation where libertarians, the supposedly great critics of government, trust government structures to defend individual rights more than they trust the man or woman in the street? I think that's a great question. And I don't know about that because there is also, um, while there, on, on a certain level, yes, I think. And then on another level, there is a world out there which is going, you know, which is taking place uh, where I think libertarians have won many of the arguments. I think we've won all of the arguments about lifestyle freedom yeah. Uh, yeah. and i think about free speech like we've won the argument but we you know but it's it's constantly you know kind of the the battle is never over yeah. but you know generally i think you know we we've have a framework for freedom of speech and freedom of expression um and i think that i'm confident that i can win the future with like libertarian debates uh, or li libertarian arguments about like do you want more planning or less planning by uh you know like distant power or do you want to have more power in your life to make meaningful choices I, I think i can persuade a lot of people with that and there is a world out there 
that is, you know, just simply where the government doesn't exist. And it's, it's individuals coming up with new ways of thinking about stuff, new ways of managing economic and commercial transactions, as well as, uh, you know, uh, more personal relationships and cultural relationships. All of that stuff is happening. And I think, you know, this is one of the, if, if libertarianism, I would say, if it has one failing, it's that it can't imagine, and this might be similar to what you were getting at, it can't imagine a world without the government because that's, we're like, you know, we're Ahab and that's our Moby Dick. And it's like, you know, let's spend less time, you know, bitching about the post office, which doesn't matter anymore, you know, because of email and, and, you know, whatever. And let's build, you know, Galt's Gulch or whatever our utopia is going to be, or, or what are the demonstration projects and experiments in living to go back to a mill phrase that we can be running. And, you know, um, I, you know, that that is something that we all need to be doing. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, Reason Magazine was founded in 1968. And at, in the same year, there was a, a publication called the Whole Earth Catalog, which was this basically it was a catalog for hippies who wanted to. It was called the subtitle was Tools for Living. And um, it was a catalog of stuff like, you know, if you're going to start a commune, here's, you know, here's a water purifier and here's how to run it. Here's a yogurt maker. They had like Bulgarian yogurt makers that you could, you know, send away for and stuff. And uh, the, the, the kind of founding statement of that was that, you know, distantly done power, you know, whether governments or churches or corporations hasn't been working out so well. We, we, we need to, mm. uh, we are as yeah. gods and we better get good at it. Yeah. And I think that's a very libertarian uh, framework. And that's the world that we need to be inhabiting yes. and selling and showing, uh, you know, you know, here's how you can do it. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, it's happening. So uh, so I, I agree with that. And uh, I, I dislike distantly done power, mm -hmm. too. And which but, I mean, is a brilliant description of the EU. Right? Exactly. For, yeah. So, so, my, yeah. so one of the questions I've been thinking about for a long time, not just in relation to you, but in relation to myself, because I called myself a Marxist libertarian for mm -hmm. a number of years. Uh, and I find myself increasingly uncomfortable with the word libertarian. And, and one mm -hmm. one reason there might be many reasons, but one is it feels to me that over the past two and a half years, um, more has been done by ordinary people um, to de to to demolish or at least severely dent distantly done power right. than has been done by a lot of us kind of clever clever liberals and libertarians over the past. Yeah. So I'm thinking of the Brexit, I'm thinking of the Gilets jaunes revolution mm -hmm. in France, I'm yeah. thinking of various populist movements that are rising up, which are explicitly, whose, whose slogan is take back control, and oh. who are explicitly calling into question technocracy, yeah. bureaucracy, political correctness, uh, particularly in the French example. So um, does that, should, should that give, let me put it like this, should that give libertarians pause for thought about where change might come from and about the possibility yeah. that collective action is not as scary as they thought it was. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, and there are different types of collectives. But yeah, I, I think yeah. that's a, re a really elegantly put way of talking about stuff. The one thing I will say is that, you know, and this is, uh, it was just Martin Luther King Day uh, mm. last Monday or, you know, a week ago from when we're recording this more or less. And, um, you know, one of the things that his example shows is that, like, when you look at the kind of black liberation movements in, in America, there were, you know, passive resistors, there were nonviolent protesters, there were very violent protesters, there were people who were blacks who were threatening to, you know, burn and kill and rape white people, you know, et cetera. And you need all of these things to change. And in the United States, for instance, like, we're going through a major 
uh, change in the way that we deal with drug policy. And this is not a small thing, and it's not simply, oh, you know, libertarians want to smoke weed or anything. It's a thread that when you start to pull on it, it, yeah. it, it takes out so many things. It takes out, you know, the medicalized state and like the addiction, you know, the whole yeah. addiction yeah. system, the court system, criminal justice reform, prisons, uh, race, class, uh, gender to a certain degree, prohibition. Uh, you know, it's it's so many. And that came about partly through plebiscites, uh, ballot initiatives in various states. It came through people working at very high levels of government to change people's minds and to flip people at the top of the pyramid. And it came through people presenting policy uh, analysis that nobody right. gave a shit right. about well, up until the minute they were like, we're, we're going to adopt that. Right. Um, so I think uh, it's your point is well taken uh, that, you know, you, we should not uh, libertarians. Nobody should be afraid of democracy in action, even if you can't, especially because you can't control it. But we shouldn't you know, we should have faith in people. But then social change happens for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, it. Um, so it's it's not simply. um you know, it's it's not simply the mob or the or the elites. Yeah. Um, so my final question: you, you talk about the need to look to the future mm -hmm. and how some of those nineteenth century and even twentieth century categories and ideas don't quite cut it in the right. contemporary climate, which I feel very strongly all the time. I, even when I talk about right and left, I find myself thinking, well, what does that mean yeah. anymore? So. What does the oh, and it's fascinating. I mean, I get, and I'm, I'm probably overstepping my knowledge here, uh, but like you know, in in England, I mean, people, you know, I don't know, somebody like John Gray, who's a, right, mm -hmm. who's like a mm -hmm. conservative, grumpy former libertarian, who's kind of a pre-modern, and he he he's a, a, a green, right? He's like a yeah. pre-modern green, yeah. which is normally a left-wing right. perspective. He's and, very, and you just see like, yeah, what what what's going on here? It's like, entire, there's a lot of mix-up at the moment, yeah. and people feel very in a very real way in a very understandable way that they don't quite know where they stand a lot right. of people feel politically homeless yeah and i often feel politically homeless yep. um so well so, uh, just to be a marxist this is because of capital uh, uh what's his face uh georg lukash the uh the uh, literary critic who wrote uh, yeah. the theory of the novel said yeah. you know the novel is a is a an artifact of transcendental homelessness that is yeah. brought on by That's capital right. absolutely and um you know, maybe he's right. So, what does so what does the future look like to you? Uh, is the ideal that you want gay married couples protecting the marijuana plants with guns, or which which is fine? Yeah, I yeah. like that idea too. That I think is, is happening. There, <laughs> yeah. That's happening. So, yeah. so beyond that, is there anything else? Uh, you know, one of the things uh, I and I've been thinking a lot about um, the millennial generation in America, or say like Americans under forty, and that. It's a it's a broader group, but even five years ago, I co-wrote a story for Reason with a woman named Emily Eakins, and she had done polling of millennials. And I was very optimistic about millennials in the sense of, um, in an American context, I thought that they were the first generation who actually was going to get the delivery, the full delivery of the so-called American dream, which I would define as living a life that is intentional and that is expressive of what you think about, both in terms of work mm -hmm. as well as lifestyle and, you know, everything you do. Because my parents, who were the first children born in America in my family, they had shitty jobs and they would, you know, do the work so that on the weekends or after hours, you know, they could give their kids some opportunities and they could have some fun. I've had, you know, I've been lucky, uh, you know, and I... Um, you know, most of most of what I do expresses something fundamental to me at, in the workplace and hopefully in my personal life. Uh, but you know, it's like my kids. I have a, a 25 year old and a 17 year old son and and friends of mine. 
you know, like millennials, it's like, oh, you, you guys, you've got it all because we're post-scarcity in a real way in America. And like, you can, you know, you, you are demanding that like work be meaningful to you in a way that I, you know, when I started out, I, all I needed was a paycheck. And I, you know, the, my career was something that was forever off in the distance. Um, and now, um, the way millennials are talking, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's their fault, uh, but it, you know, they're not perceiving this freedom as mm -hmm. a, as a good thing. It's in many ways, it's overwhelming to be like, I'm 22 or I'm 25 and I have to not just get a paycheck, but I have to have like a fucking inspiring job or something, you know, like they're, they're not doing well under this. Mm. Um, the effects of the financial crisis and the global financial crisis, as well as the bank crisis here, I think the failure of authority of older generations to be like, no, seriously, like, this is how you, you gain mastery in, at a craft or a skill or a job, et cetera. And like really enforcing that, not in a jerk way, but like in a, in a way that will build skills and, and build people's mastery and, you know, et cetera. Like we're, we're kind of shirking that responsibility. So I am I'm nervous about the future in a way that I was not because I think amidst, amidst all of this, um, you know, wealth. And it's like, even with the economic downturn and stuff like that, you know, America is like a ridiculously wealthy country and we're like, we're kind of blowing it, you know, and we're, we're squabbling over these fucking, you know, idiot kids wearing MAGA hats and a, a native American who was lying about being a Vietnam vet. Like suddenly <laughs> that's all we want to talk about. And we're not, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're doing everything we can not to look at a bigger picture right. and a grander narrative of the future, which, I would argue to the extent that it gets more libertarian and it is like if you want to be gay married raising pot plants and patrolling your farm with with guns that's one vision you know and go do that as long as you're not like shooting at people randomly you know out <laughs> from your farm um and you know and then there are like you know there might be a uh you know a marxist collective that is doing what it wants to do and then there's this and then there's that and yeah. like having um you know, kind of villages, I mean, to stick, you know, we're in an era of tribalism, but having more villages kind of that, where people are constantly moving in and out of and learning from one another and things like that, like, we need to rebuild that kind of positive vision, which um, I, you know, I think is at the core of the liberal vision of like voluntary communities. It's very much and again, it's for me, it's a secularization of religious life, where you affiliate with communities, you get sick of each other and you break off and you have splinter groups and, you know, and you all learn like society gets better the more it goes forward as long as things are mostly voluntary. Nick Gillespie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back next month with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.